Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Carol serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, graduate of Trinity University and the University of the Incarnate Word, where she majored in and got a master's degree in gerontology. She also has been doing this show with me for years now, which is really cool. That's right. We were so much younger when we started. We were. We were. We were cute then. Yeah, but we aged well. I know, but you can't tell how cute we were then as opposed to now. You know, one of these days we're going to have... Uh, FaceTime. I know. Soon, coming and soon, we'll you will FaceTime be able live, to tell. Yeah. I'm saying that Facebook now live. before the cameras actually come on. Yes. So people, I don't know, get something in their heads. Or we could have screens in front of us and they could only see the microphones. I know. My, my, my trick to staying young is old photographs. I like that. Works well. Keep them in the closet? <laughs> yeah, just keep pulling out the same old photograph from 10 years ago. I, I stay amazingly young. That's pretty cool. By the way, speaking of neat things, our guest coming up in just a couple of moments, Nadine Roberts Cornish, author of Tears in My Gumbo, the caregiver's recipe for resilience. And she talks about not only her experience as a caregiver for a lot of years for her mom and for her husband, but the work she does counseling, working with, and training caregivers so we look forward to talking to her that's right and having just come back from new orleans the word she had me at gumbo perfect yes it was it's it was perfect i start i just smile thinking about the word well we love new orleans what do you got there in front of you it looks like a pretty neat story well you know i this was something i rarely respond to posts um that i see i'm not a social media person um and this was in memory well uh, which is a newsletter for uh, older persons and, and caregiving. How to tell someone with dementia that someone has died, well, a loved and, one. And, and this story really hit home for me. It was how to tell someone with dementia that a loved one has died. Um, and the story was about a, a gentleman whose mother's best friend's husband, that they, you know, she'd known him for 60 years, that he had passed away. Um, and they called the friend regularly. And the mom usually, you know, talked to, talked to both of them. And so his mother had been in memory care for a number of years, and he told her, you know, you remember your friend um, and her husband, you know, how her husband had been sick for years, Mom. You know, he died. He passed away. And she's like, oh, oh, well, let's call her. So they called her um, and spoke with her. And then immediately after they hung up, she said, you know, how is my friend doing? Right. Um, and didn't really remember the conversation, but she did remember subsequent, well, subsequently that the husband had died. Um, and so the question was, you know, some people are comfortable with a, a therapeutic fib, you know, which or a little white lie, we might say, uh, to, to sometimes with people with dementia. And so the the question and the balance here is when someone has dementia, you you want to treat them with respect. In this case, the gentleman knew his mother, that was an old friend, and he really wanted him to know, or he wanted his mom to know that the gentleman passed away. Um, but I was remembering a story early in my career, and that's what I actually blogged back, uh, where I was speaking with a, a woman, and she mentioned her son, and, and I reminded her, or I didn't exactly mean to remind her, but I said that was the son who died in the plane crash, which had happened like 10 years earlier. 
but she didn't remember that. Right. And she thought her son had just died in oh. a plane crash right that day. And she cried, and she was grief-stricken, and I was horrified. What did you do? That I had actually put her in right. the state, and the, the spouse that was there was, you know, mouthing over to me. It was 10 years ago, you know, don't worry about it. And I'm, But for her, it was fresh, and the grief was very real. And so what I responded back was one of the techniques – um, was that when someone asks you, if you're not sure what their state of mind is, if you don't, you know, you're afraid you might step in it again by, you know, refreshing this horrible grief. Um, when she mentioned her son, I could have said something like, uh, you know, that was your older son um, who I think had a pilot's license, did he not? And and then I could tell from there, oh, yes, he loves to fly. And depending on how she talked about him, I could stay in the same tense. See or, if she knew, in other See words. if she knew, or, or or even to say, oh, he's the one that lives in Connecticut, right? And and she would say, oh, yes, Connecticut. And, and I would just talk about him right. without mentioning, you know, the current state of affairs with him. So I just thought that was very helpful and and it is something we we want to respect people that have memory loss but we don't want to you know redredging i can just imagine if um there was a, another family member caregiver that just insisted you know mom your son's dead you know he's dead and sometimes we we do this thing where we try to beat into people that have memory loss some memory they cannot recall or i've seen uh, uh and read about people confronting someone you don't know my name. Why don't you know my name? We've met a hundred times. I'm your kid. You should know my name. Yes. Yeah. And they and they get angry. It becomes personal. There's something wrong with you. I, you know. Yeah. And we and we don't need to call that out. No. Uh, when folks have dementia or if they're confused because they've been in a hospital. So I just thought that was a it, it was a story that really brought back one of my early errors. Uh, and so, you know, it, I, it's kind of like working retail when you're it would, fitting close to someone. I learned early in my career to say, oh, I'm sorry, that's too small. It's how, did, how do you how feel does, about right. that fit? How does that right. fit? Just or in they case should, they yeah. think five sizes too small is actually a good fit and yeah. a good look. Well, that's one thing husbands learn early on. Sweetheart, does this dress make me look fat? Absolutely not. <laughs> it's like, how do you feel in it? I feel fine. Well, great. Looks it great. Looks fabulous. Yeah. If you just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron talking with Carol Zerniel, our co-host, and we're going to be talking in just a couple of moments with the author of Tears in My Gumbo, The Caregiver's Recipe for Resilience, Nadine Roberts Cornish will be joining us. Exercise. How does it affect our memory? Let's hope in a good way. Well, there's a lot. You know, I think I, I was going through the most recent articles. This is from uh, our friend Gretchen Reynolds at the New York Times. But there's a lot about memory and exercise all of a sudden. Uh, but this particular one I, I liked because it was talking about um, we, we've heard that exercise helps your brain. But is it long-term or is it short-term? And so that was the question some researchers were trying to, to answer. Uh, and what they found, you know, we know that exercise can um, help create new neurons in your brain. So we used to think brains, you know, you've probably heard that, oh, you when you're drinking, you're killing your brain cells. You'll never grow another new one, and that's it. They're dead. 
Well, that brain cell might be dead, but guess what? We there are actually, others. There are others. We actually do grow uh, more neurons, and our brains are much more plastic, much more, than, you know, they'll actually change in size and shape, just like muscles you use and you don't use. You know how you exercise the muscle, ooh, looks good. Don't exercise it for a couple of months, ooh, it doesn't, right. you know, you don't, can't, don't look pumped up anymore. So your brains are kind of like that. You can actually increase the volume of your hippocampus. I personally like thinking about exercise giving me a big brain. For some reason, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to have big biceps, but if I can increase the size of my brain and that's going to help my memory, then I am all for that. And, and basically what they found was that our brains, like a muscle, become more fit. And so when you exercise over a long period of time, you're actually training your brain and the memory centers over a long period of time, and they will stay more fit. So the same way you want to do the exercise regime for your muscles, you want to use it for your brain. That's pretty cool. So that's pretty easy to understand, right? It so, is. It is. So and The thing that amazes me, if someone has a stroke and they lose control of a portion of their body, the brain can be retrained using another part of the brain. Yeah, it rewires. It's using those muscles again. Right. You know, it'll, it's it'll, just phenomenal. It'll create a new pathway around another way, just like, you know, if you broke a, the electrical cord and you rigged something else. Another, splice it together. Splice it together, rigged up another cord. Um, you know, you, your brain can do that as That's well. That's fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's, and it's also one of those things that makes me, um, gives us hope. Right? There's not a lot of hope in the memory loss world. And so uh, if a little exercise helps our memory, that gives me a little more hope and hopefully some others who are listening as well. Well, as you think about it, brains play a pretty important role in our success and quality of life. Well, we do. We, it's like we use our brains every day. So in, in that same vein, I told you there were several stories. This about one is ex- on uh, mild, boosting brain function. Yes, in mild cognitive impairment. So on a spectrum, we have mild cognitive impairment is the first signs of memory loss. And then you have early Alzheimer's if it indeed progresses. And just because you have mild cognitive impairment does not mean you will get Alzheimer's. It is a risk factor. So an example of uh, mild cognitive impairment would be forgetting something. Well, not just forgetting something. It would be it would be memory loss that actually impacts your ability to function at some level, oh, okay. like not being able to navigate the streets or not being able to remember family members' names that you normally would. It would be something that actually um, was unusual, unusual and kept you from doing things you normally do. So a little bit more significant than just forgetting your car keys. Um, but what's interesting was they found that in mild cognitive impairment, your brain goes into crisis mode, and it sends this rush of blood up into your brain. It's like, oh, it's not working well. We've got to get more blood flow up there. That's going to help us, right? So it's, it's kind of your, your brain is, yeah, it's trying to repair itself. Um, and so they used people um, that had mild cognitive impairment with some exercise, and what they found is it decreased blood flow to the brain. Which they thought, well, that's kind of strange. But what they figured out was, just like we were talking about training your brain, right. was that the brain was doing better with the exercise in recalling memory. It took it out of the panic mode so that the person had less blood flow, less crisis going on in the brain, and higher scores on memory tests. Interesting. And they ran the same experiment with people who didn't have mild cognitive impairment. 
the exercise increased flow to their brain as opposed to decreased it huh. because they were working harder, right? They're right. working harder. They, you know, they, they didn't already have too much bl- or, or all that blood in their brain. And they improved on memory scores too. So it doesn't matter if you've got MCI and cognitive impairment or not. Exercise is going to help your memory. So all of us need that. Works well. I like that a lot. We're going to talk in just a moment, speaking of memory, about resilience and how that can help you as a caregiver. Nadine Roberts Cornish will be joining us, author of Tears in My Gumbo. And we look forward to talking with her. I'm Ron Aaron. We're talking with Carol Zerniel, our co-host here on Caregiver SOS on Air. Before we jump to Nadine, uh, we just had the WellMed Charitable Run and Walk for Seniors, the Charitable Foundation's Day. Uh, and it was great. It was great. We had 840 people sign up. We had about 500 seniors. Um, and the oldest gentleman was a World War II vet, 93 years old, and he was power walking that day. An amazing thing about him. When uh, the young woman uh, uh, sang the Star Spangled Banner, a, a senior at Churchill High School, did a great job. When the gr- group was listening the only one singing was the 93-year-old veteran. You could see him singing, singing along, along with her. Yes, the only one is I looked around the crowd. Oh, that was great. Yeah, we had, and um, he, he, he finished the, the run or the walk, right. um, and it was a real privilege to have him. And he was still walking around. He so was still, that was pretty right. cool. We talked with Nadine Roberts Cornish in just a moment. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, we are so pleased you were sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And as we have been promising, Nadine Roberts Cornish joins us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline, author of Tears in My Gumbo, The Caregiver's Recipe for Resilience, and a pretty good title. She spent 15 years as a caregiver to her mother, Elizabeth St. Cyr Roberts, and talks about uh, what that was like and what she learned. She also uh, had experience as a care manager, coordinated care, consulted with and supported family caregivers across the country. And Nadine, we appreciate you coming on Caregiver SOS on air. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ron. Tell us a little bit about what you learned in that caregiving journey with your mother. Well, I learned that um, I had to release the need to be perfect, that... um, I had to love my mother in the moment. Uh, I, I really had to let go of all of that, all of the wishing and the hoping uh, for things to be different from what, from what they were. So really learning to live in the moment and learning to appreciate and love, love, love her and love myself in the moment as well. You have a neat line in uh, some of the copy I saw that once your mother passed away, you figured, boy, thank God I'm done with caregiving. I never even have to say that word again. Exactly. 
right? So what happened? (laughs) (laughs) You you make plans and God laughs, right? Um, What happened was the phone started to ring and I really began to understand why my 15-year journey with my mom had been so intense and so complex. I didn't know that my uh, situation with my mom was actually training ground for the work that I was to do. So my mom's been gone for uh, 11 years now. For the past 10 years, I've been supporting family caregivers in their journey, helping them to um, make sense of some of the madness and to navigate through um, some of the challenging waters that caregivers often have to travel. Well, what do you find um, is a common theme among the caregivers that you're working with? What are they looking for? They're looking for permission to take care of themselves and put themselves first. They're looking for resources. They're looking for ways to deal with um, challenging family dynamics. Which we know that never happens. There's never a family. <laughs> yeah, never family, problem family with families. Yeah, family. That's <laughs> yeah. None of that. Right? Huh. Yeah. You know, they, they want to trade in. You know, they want to trade in the family that they have for a later model. And uh, not you just got to figure out a way to work with what, you, what you've got. <laughs> and one of the things I noted, and I wanted you to explain it because I'm not sure I understand it. You said you have companioned uh, your loved one through chronic and critical illnesses that span the course of 15 years. So you were caregiving for your husband, too? No, I was uh, caring for my mom and also my grandmother. Oh, okay. Yes. So your grandmother also? Yes, for my grandmother also. I didn't have the full, full-time full care of my grandmother. My grandmother was my long-distance caregiving experience. And so I would travel from uh, Colorado to Los Angeles to uh, participate in that process and to uh, give my aunt a much-needed break. So lucky you, you had to do two different caregiving <laughs> responsibilities. Yeah. Lucky me. You know, lucky me that I had people, that I had uh, an incredible mother and an amazing grandmother that loved me in a way that, way that um, really afforded me the, the honor and the privilege of being able to take care of both of them. Now, what was your relationship with your mother like before you were her caregiver, and and did that change at all? Uh, Certainly, to some extent, it did. So my relationship with my mom, I was the oldest daughter, and so my mom and I was and had been always very, very close. Uh, my mother was my great encourager and supporter. There was nothing that I could do and, you know, uh, let my mom tell it, right? And so we had a really, a really special relationship. When she became ill, of course, things shifted. And for my mom, because she was diagnosed initially with a brain tumor, and the complexity of that brain tumor really put her in a position where when she'd go to the doctors and I would always go with her, she would basically sort of tune out. She would listen, but she could really just not take it in. And so it really became my job to, um, to, to be her eyes and ears and to advocate on her behalf. And I mean, when we would leave the doctor's office, we could talk about what, what had transpired, diagnosis, prognosis, etc. But it was just 
a real difficulty that she had in terms of being able to comprehend and to hear what the doctor was saying. All right, stay with us a minute. For those of you who may have just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we're talking on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline with Nadine Roberts Cornish about caregiving and her experience as a caregiver, and for the past many years, serving as a helper, consultant, and supporter of other caregivers. She has attended the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs, where she earned a professional certification in gerontology, and she has been teaching through the Johns Hopkins program gerontology as well. And Nadine, as you think about what you've been doing, uh, both Carol and I, who love New Orleans and love gumbo, we're curious about the title of your book. Tears in My Gumbo, The Caregiver's Recipe for Resilience. Well, being a native of New Orleans, uh, gumbo is absolutely, it's the, the, uh, it's the, 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 recipe of uh, a statewide recipe. Uh, I don't think there's more, there's a more popular dish in all of Louisiana than gumbo. And so gumbo is basically, culturally, it's the thing that I grew up with. I don't know life without gumbo. And gumbo is a very complex and challenging dish to make because of the myriad of ingredients that are involved and the process of preparing. You know, there are some people who will take two days to prepare the perfect pot of gumbo. Wow. And so it is a tedious process. It is a, uh, in a detailed process. And um, it's, it, it's definitely uh, the recipe of my, uh, of my life. And so I, the analogy of the gumbo preparation and the caregiving journey was very synonymous to me. Gumbo is the thing that we prepare no matter what's going on for celebration, uh, in sadness, uh, uh, if, we, if, we need a, if we need a picker-upper. Uh, uh, preparing that gumbo is a ritual. And to be able to do so with loved ones, with other people that you love, with people in the community that are expert at preparing gumbo, and you're simply there to, uh, to serve as a sous chef, to do some chopping and, uh, you know, stirring and mixing, you know, it, it, it's a community process and it's a beautiful thing. And I, I think that caregiving is that way as well. You can do it by yourself, but doing it in community, doing it with the support of others is ideally the way to go. I love as you talk about gumbo, your New Orleans accent comes out. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. That's pretty cool. (laughs) Now, you talk about resilience, uh, and there's no doubt that uh, to be a successful caregiver, resilience is an important attribute. Absolutely. If you have it, do you have it, or, or can you develop it? You, you absolutely develop it because you don't know what is it, you know, what aspect of the journey that, that uh, you know, the journey is so interesting. There are days where you don't know how you're going to get through the day, and then somehow you get through the day, and it's putting one foot in front of the other, taking it one day at a time. Right, and also developing a plan along the uh, along the way, a plan for self care for yourself, and a plan for how do you continue to care for your loved one. So, talk about a plan a plan for self care. What would that look like? First of all, it looks like taking out your calendar and actually 
scheduling yourself on your calendar. You know how we put everything that's important on the calendar? Well, it's really important to put yourself on the calendar. And I really recommend that you color code your calendar and choose your favorite color for yourself. So when you look at the week and you look at that color-coded calendar, you look at where your favorite color falls on that calendar. And if you don't... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I, I want to come back to the importance. If you don't schedule yourself... It doesn't happen? Exactly. You've got to make you the priority in your own life, because if you don't do it, nobody else is going to do it. Well, give us an example of an activity that you might schedule for yourself as self-care. Well, self-care looks different to, ev- to everybody. I've got one client literally going out into her yard and pulling weeds is one activity that she refers to as self-care. She said because that's time for her to meditate, it's time for her to be alone and just get in that dirt, and she loves doing that, right? Right. So that for her would be an example. For me, you know, give me a spa day anytime, right? But sometimes that's cost prohibitive, so I can't do that all the time. But curling up with a good book, oh, my gosh, I love to do that. So scheduling that 30 minutes on my calendar for reading in my backyard, that's self-care. And what happens to the care recipient while you're doing self-care? Because a lot of caregivers believe no one else can do the job they're doing. Well, that's a fallacy that we work, we work to get over. We, we overcome that misconception, right? Because actually a variety of care is needed and desired in the caregiving journey. And so for the person who believes that no one else can do it better or that they can't turn it over to someone else, that's simply a misconception that we work through. Well, I, you know, I like the idea. I like the visual of this calendar and it's colored for the different activities. So a, at a glance, I can tell what types of activities, maybe, you know, one color is doctor's appointments and another is some chores. And then there's my color for myself. Um, I I just like that visual. What Mm -hmm. what color did you pick for yourself? My color, I'm, I'm a red, red is my favorite color. Cool. So on my calendar, when I pull it up on a weekly basis, I see red every single day. (laughs) <laughs> All right, now, there is something that I'm doing for myself every day. Stay with us a minute. We're going to come right back to you. And I want to touch on uh, something that you talk about as, as a coach and as a caregiver coach. Uh, you, you let people hear what perhaps they don't want to hear. We'll talk about that next on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel and our special guest, Nadine Roberts-Cornish, on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline. You hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. As I think about it, Carol Zerniel, this is the first show we've actually talked about gumbo, and I like that part, talking about gumbo, caregiving, and resilience, and how they fit together with our very special guest, Nadine Roberts-Cornish, who is on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And you write, uh, uh, Nadine, about being a straight shooter as a coach to sometimes tell people things they don't want to hear. What would be an example? Uh, I, we, just before we went to break, we were talking about um, uh, basically the, the person who believes that 
nobody else can do the job better than they can. Right. Or they can't possibly turn over this responsibility to anyone else. Well, that would be an example of really um, sort of telling it like it is and really giving people an opportunity to really rethink and, and, and evaluate. None of us are irreplaceable, right? We absolutely... Uh, we, we certainly do what we do well, but there are others who can do the job just as well, and in some instances better, Well, and, and embracing that idea, right? And then sometimes it's okay to not do it as well. I'm thinking about a, you know, a caregiver that it was a gentleman, and, you know, maybe the socks didn't match, and maybe the dress wasn't pressed, <laughs> and maybe the hair could use a little more work. But you know what? She still, you know, was able to go off to adult daycare center and have her activities, and it was okay. Was it as good as, you know, some of the other ladies dressed to the nines? No, but it was it was okay, and it was, exactly. you know, and she was fine. Um, and so some of those unrealistic expectations we put on ourselves, and I heard you say that, to be perfect. My neighbor Jimmy's uh, wife is in a memory unit, uh, and he likes to help her make up, help her with her hair. And so he went to one of the big department store cosmetic counters and asked the woman there to teach him how to do makeup so he could do it for his wife. It's a oh, neat little wow. story. That's so sweet. And so Jimmy goes there every morning. And does her makeup for her. Wow. Oh, That's unusual. That is, it really, cool. it really is. But it's, it's special, right? But also in that same vein, I would talk to Jimmy about, hey, you know, maybe there's someone, there's someone in the family that could take on the task of doing the makeup for her, right? Or certainly if not every day, but uh, on special occasions, special weekends, that, that niece or granddaughter might enjoy that task, or grandson for that matter, right? I, I but think really part, sharing the responsibility. Part of it for him is the psychic income he gets out of doing it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> That's right. So he can let somebody he can let somebody else pick something else. I mean, right. He's, exactly. He's, he's still he's he's got this down. He's going to keep. Yeah, doing he's so it. proud of doing it. Right. Well, the other oh, yeah. th- the <laughs> other thing that you mentioned um, that we were laughing at earlier in the show was family dynamics. So oh, yeah. you know what is it? What do you have to do when you're coaching a family? What's going on in that family usually? Oh my gosh, there is no such thing as a usual, right? No. Um, there have, families are just as diverse and as different as flowers, right? And, uh, the dynamics that show up during the caregiving journey are usually an exaggeration of what's already been happening in the family, right? It's just magnified with the caregiving uh, scenario. And so every family is absolutely positively different. And what I invite uh, my clients to do is really to embrace the family that they have right, to love the nuances and the craziness and even the things that you, you can't stand sometimes about your, about your family, but really learning how to embrace that because I really believe that our families are here to teach us the lessons that no other entity, group, organization, or people can teach us. Well, what would you say if a family member, um, like, you know, they say, well, my sister never helps. I have to do everything. My sister never helps me. You know, <laughs> how how would you work with that particular caregiver who's really mad at her sister and feels like she's getting the short end of the stick? Exactly. So what I do is I invite them to look in the mirror. 
are, you know, how are you communicating your needs to your sister? What has your relationship with your sister been like previously? And what are some of the things that you can adjust? What Sometimes it's just a tone, right? Sometimes we turn people off by how we talk to them. But if I've always been the big sister talking condescendingly to my little sister and we're grown now and I'm still using that same tone, still saying those same things that really irritate my sister to no end, then I am completely turning her off. I'm not inviting her to participate in the process. I'm not being inviting. I have a friend, a male friend, who was caring for his mother. He lived in, and still lives in San Antonio. His sister lived in Dallas, and all she could do was try to direct via long-distance telephone. Never offered Uh to help, never participated, and was very critical. And and, and one day, my friend came up with a great idea. He he said, "Uh, can I have mom come up and, and just spend a week with you. I've got something I have to do, uh, and I could use your help. So mom went up to Dallas, came back a week later, and the sister said, just keep doing what you're doing. I've got no problem with it. (laughs) She doesn't have to come back to Dallas. (laughs) Right. The shoe's on the other foot. Yes. Yeah, it works. That's that's important. It's really important that um, the long-distance caregiver especially gets an opportunity to experience what it's really like to be the primary caregiver. And for the sister, it turned out to be a thousand times more work and stress than she had imagined. Exactly. Right. And so what I invite family members to do is I really invite, particularly with the primary caregiver, is to... Really, bring every, let's bring everybody together. Let's have, whether it's a telephone conversation or whether we're able to all sit around the table, and let's talk about what it is that each individual can bring to the table. How can you best support the circumstances based on your personal situation and circumstance, right? Now, for those so of everybody you- can't provide the direct personal care, but, you know, some people can provide financial support. Others can, uh, others can provide moral support. For those of you who just joined us, we're talking with Nadine Roberts Cornish. She's the author of Tears in My Gumbo, The Caregiver's Recipe for Resilience. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and you hear us on 930 AM, The Answer. One of the things that you note in, in your bio, uh, Nadine, is that you have a certification that includes patient navigator. What does that mean? So patient navigator is I actually support uh, particularly women caregivers who uh, who have neglected themselves and haven't uh, taken uh, taken advantage of you know the the annual uh, exams and physicals that they need to take care of mammograms, paps, that kind of thing. I really help support them through that process to ensure that they get the appointments, identify programs for those who don't have insurance, uh, really support them in actually manifesting the self-care that we talk about. You know, one of the scary statistics is how many caregivers predecease their care recipients. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and a lot it of that really it, is something. It, it's due to lack of care for themselves. Yes. Yes. Well, what else is in the book 
Tears in My Gumbo, the recipe for resilience that you really want caregivers to hear and make note of? Uh, I talk about the five steps of conscious caregiving. I define conscious caregiving as caring on purpose with intention and a plan. And then I talk about the the five steps of uh, caregiving. Uh, First step being helplessness. Second step being recognition, recognition that you don't know what you don't know and you need to seek help, uh, help outside of what you normally do. And then the third step is process, and that's a lengthy process. That's figuring, figuring it all out and also understanding that in that process, you've got to take care of yourself first and foremost. Fourth step is acceptance. A lot of us don't want to accept the reality of what we're contending with as caregivers. We want to change. We want things to change. And oftentimes things don't change and they don't get better. And then the fifth step is surrender, letting go and letting God. And whatever it is for you, whatever God is for you, um, surrendering to a higher source, a higher power. And what does that do for you? Uh, it gives you peace of mind. It gives you um, acknowledgement of the reality of life, the cycle of life, uh, and also recognition that we are not in control as much as we want to be. One of the questions that often comes up is uh, how to encourage participation in decisions by the care recipient uh, if they're able to do so rather than the caregiver unilaterally deciding what's needed, what's done, what happens. Mm-hmm. And that's really where that plan of care comes, in, uh, comes into play. For as long as the care recipient is in a position to voice their opinions and, and, and uh, express their, their needs, their wants and their desires, that should be recognized and it should be honored. And then the question of participating in doctor's appointments, obviously, uh, you encourage the caregiver to attend those doctor meetings, doctor exams. Always, yes. I, I contend that you get much better care when there's an eyewitness. And is there a way to do that? I know some of our physicians encourage patients and caregivers uh, to tape record the interaction with the doctor so that they have a record of what was discussed. Absolutely. Uh, uh, to, to record, and now that we've got phones that do everything, you can record directly from your phone. Right. But it's also important to take notes as well. You get a higher level of care when, you know, when the, uh, when the physician, the medical provider, recognizes that you're paying attention, right? <laughs> and you're actually documenting what's being said. That's a pretty good point. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it, it, because all of us want to protect ourselves. So if I see you taking notes, I'm going to want to be sure I'm doing the right thing and doing it often. Exactly. Now, as we come down to about two minutes left, uh, what are the you know the major pieces of advice you give to someone who simply falls into caregiving, which I think happens more than not? You get the call, grandma's in the ICU, you need to get here quick, and suddenly you're a caregiver. Exactly. Uh, the first thing is you really recognizing that you there are resources out there and to access those resources. 
ask questions. Um, uh, when we talk about the five steps of uh, conscious caregiving, we talk about recognize, recognition, and recognition being that there is a lot that you don't know. This is a whole new arena for most people. And so ask for resources, ask for, um, you know, ask for people tell me all the time they've never heard of a caregiver culture consultant. Well, they're becoming much, much more common now. So ask about who's out there that can support me and um, and, and figuring this out because I don't know what to do. So a caregiver consultant? Caregiver consultant, caregiver coach, care manager. How, how do you yeah. find one? Uh through the uh, area on aging, uh, lots of uh, care managers are registered with, uh, with hospitals. So especially if you find yourself in, a, in an emergency situation, oftentimes a social worker at the um, hospital can refer you. So the AAA. The, yeah, not yeah. the car AAA, the other right. AAA. The area agency yeah. on aging. Well, um, <laughs> if, so if someone wanted to find your book, Tears in My Gumbo, how would they find it? It's available on Amazon, but if they'd like a signed copy, they can uh, they can access that on t- at tcgcares.com, which is my website. So tcg tcg tcgcares cares dot com. Yes. And there's other information there as well. Exactly. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Thanks very much. And Carol, you well, had a final comment. No, no, I, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm just looking up the website. Oh, you're gonna go get it. TCGcares.com. <laughs> I really appreciate the work that you guys are doing, and well, I'm really honored to uh, be a part of the show today. And we thank were thinking so before much. you came on that if this doesn't work out, Nadine Roberts Cornish could be a law firm. Oh, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, I'm definitely sticking with caregivers. All right. Good you choice. take care, yeah. Nadine. Great talking well, to you. Thank you guys so much. Okay. Ron and Carol, it's a pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Nadine Roberts Cornish, Tears in My Gumbo, the caregiver's recipe for resilience. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Up next, Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're so pleased you are sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of each and every one of our programs, we bring you Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known psychotherapist, expert on not only addictions, but caregiving as well. We call the segment Take 10. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. And Carol... You've got a very interesting topic for today. Well, yeah, I was reading a story about, um, you know, grief and loss, and which is not unusual in the caregiving space. A lot of times uh, grief can be something that accompanies us but even before a person has passed. And then many times in caregiving, our journey ends when we do lose a loved one. But, Jamie, um, a while back I was remembering that, you know, there there's grief and then there's grief that goes on 
um, and it's no longer quote unquote normal. So what what is it? How would we know when maybe the grief that someone is going through is not typical of grief? Well, Carol, complicated grief looks a whole lot like depression. Obviously, depression is a you know it looks like a constant feeling of sadness. And it can be obviously chemically induced, if you will. It could be triggered to be a chemical depression. Um, and the symptoms obviously are, are very similar to what you're just asking about in terms of complicated grief. Complicated grief, though, is, is literally caused by the death of somebody. And, you know, we do all obviously face this issue about deaths in our family, and it's, it's, it's huge and and sometimes it's expected, and sometimes it's not, and often it's traumatic, and sometimes it's not. But there is normally a time of grief, which is a month or two months. You go through stages of grief, and then you come out the other side. But complicated grief is when you really don't come out the other side, and you have very much trouble moving on for, let's say, months, years, if you will, or even longer. And you start actually avoiding people and, and isolating and, and, and really having a tough time with your life entirely. So I'm thinking of every movie I've seen about Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. And in real life, Queen Victoria wore black. Her husband died when they were in their 40s, I believe. Um, and she wore black the rest of her life. Would that be complicated grief? Well, it sure would be holding on to something very, very deep and powerful and complicated grief is exactly that it's like a powerful sort of pain inside your soul when you when you lost somebody um and it creates a feeling of numbness and you're, you're describing black and obviously it's a symbol for her in terms of always having her environment see the numbness but but she herself has that numbness and bitterness and wearing that that black forever it's but it's also you know accompanied by a loss of trust for your environment and uh, your whole world gets a lot smaller and, and you have an inability to enjoy life on, uh, at any level that would be i i'd mentioned briefly to you guys off the air my aunt reva her husband leo died uh they were very close very tight had one daughter uh, and reva never got over it we're talking decades decades where she would talk about him uh, see how much she missed him, how sad she was, how depressing it was, so that it affected her life forever. Can you help them? How do you yeah. break them out of it? You know, Ron, in that sense, you know, you can trigger. You can be a triggering event for uh, an endogenous or clinical depression that's pretty much genetically predisposed. I mean, sometimes grief really does that. To us, uh, you know, often we have ups and downs, but we know ge- depression is also a genetic issue, and sometimes it doesn't surface until you have that triggering event. And that triggering event you're describing uh, in your family it, it was exactly that, and maybe it brought out this this clinical depression. That's why when you have complicated grief or you know you can't discern it from your depression, you have to get into a psychiatrist. Uh, or certainly a, an ARP or somebody in the psychiatric world to get an assessment and evaluation. Well, and I think that's the piece that um, a lot of people kind of miss. We read self-help books, and, you know, here we are in Texas where you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Um, but there are situations where you really can't cure yourself. No, you can't. And it's a biochemical depression. It, you really can't. There's there's excellent medications out there that we 
you know, utilized for many years. The, the world of, of psychopharmacology has evolved and matured. So many of the medications are, have less side effects, but certainly they're more targeted. And yes, you're right, Carol. I mean, you do need, you know, the medical, the psychological, and the social approach to deal with either depression or symptoms of complicated grief. He's Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zernio. You're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. So, Jamie, not to be overly devious, but could we have slipped some of those medications into my <laughs> Aunt Reva's granola in the morning and, and say, hey, oh, what do you think? Wow. As, you should have, Ron. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kelly. I was going to say, Ron might be able to do that. I'm sure Dr. Jamie cannot go slipping medications into the granola. Even if I could, Carol, <laughs> it would take at least three weeks, Ron, and I'd have to flip <laughs> every it in day. there for that period right. of time. Right, you'd have to do it every day. Every day for three weeks. That's yeah. hard. That's Boy, that's more than sleight of hand. That's like a career. <laughs> that's true. Right. Well, often when you can't read or anybody who has complicated grief issues or depression is looking for that silver bullet. And though we've come so far in psychopharmacology, it is still a medication that takes, you know, at least two to three weeks to be able to build up in the system and, mm-hmm. and have any sort of effect. So um, if you are going to see your psychiatrist or, or physician and getting that, uh, that medication, you know, mm-hmm. the cavalry will come, but you have to have the intention to, to stay in it and take that medication over a period of time. Now, I know I've asked this question in a lot of different ways, but if you're in that situation, uh, do you know, did, did Aunt Reva somehow no, this isn't right, that there's something wrong, I need to fix it? Yes, Ron, I, I believe she did. I, I think all of us know who we were before, who we are now. Um, you know, I'm sure Aunt Reva wasn't helpless in her lifetime. I'm sure Aunt no, she Reva, wasn't. you know her best. No, nah, she probably was vibrant and vivacious and connected and had, you know, great energy, but no doubt she was feeling the, the her helplessness and she was feeling a loss of interest and and. And again, sleep uh, is an issue, and, and you start isolating. So uh, I'm sure she did. And don't ever forget, too, that, again, at the end of the day, complicated grief also spawns suicidal ideation. So you can't just pass it off as if this is a diagnosis with no consequences. Certainly, if you have a loved one like this, make sure that you all strategize and game plan and get them the help they need. Well, I was having a, a conversation recently about the the current group of cohorts that are older and how resistant they are to getting help, psychological help. It's not something that they, you know, feel comfortable signing up for, ooh, talking to a psychiatrist or a psychologist. It'd be an anathema to many. You know, yeah, they really struggle with that. So for the family that's struggling to get somebody in to help, what would you recommend? Well, that's a huge issue. Shame and stigma with this generation you're describing is always going to be a challenge. Um, Sometimes you find a peer, a peer who has actually gone through it, um, I know it's tough to get somebody to support group. That's always a preferable place because they can feel safe and have others around them. But if you can't bring somebody in who is, you know, educated and empowered and has been, who's a peer of them, a senior, and let them talk to them one-on-one culturally, and maybe they can be the lily pad to get them to where they need to be. Um, but definitely there's always the, the loving, you know, sort of intervention. But if you do that, do it with a geriatric care manager who understands these issues of complicated grief and depression. So I'm hearing you say you, you may need to bring somebody from the outside to help make that suggestion or somebody from the outside to actually come into the house and deliver the service there at home. 
You always do. In fact, when I dealt with policemen and firemen in terms of uh, addiction issues and whatnot, they just wouldn't take a social worker or psychologist into their house. So I always brought a recovering police officer or a fireman or somebody who culturally could connect to them. I don't think seniors or people who go through complicated grief are any different. It's a cultural issue. That's a good point. Uh, Or maybe in some cases talk to your faith leader, maybe a rabbi or a minister. Yeah, if you can. Again, that's a, that's a wonderful place to be able to go. But, you know, the, the beauty uh, and the, not the beauty of being in a faith-based community, eh? it's spiritual, but it's also sometimes political and neighborly. Right. So, again, if you can talk, do that. And if you can bring them in, just like Carol was talking about, bring them into that loving intervention. But you have to game plan for this. You do not go in and confront because the control issues will have that particular person repelling and probably getting more isolated. Dr. Jamie, as always, thank you. Complicated grief is a very complicated topic. We appreciate you talking about it. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman, Carol Zerniel, our co-host. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, Take 10 on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.